You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. The human heart is in great need of internal transformation and change. And if there was ever evidence of this reality, Exodus chapter 32 would be Exhibit A. The people of Israel had given themselves to the law of God. They had said that the Ten Commandments were good. They had said that they would do all that the Lord required of them. But after Moses left and went back to Mount Sinai to receive the fullness of the law of God, especially the instructions concerning the tabernacle and the priesthood, which would serve as a sign of the covenant that the people of Israel had with God, the people immediately rushed into what appears to be idolatry here in Exodus chapter 32. It is one thing to say with your mouth that you will be obedient to the Lord, but it's another thing entirely to have the power to do so. And of course, the wonderful mystery biblically is that Christ is in us the hope of glory, according to Colossians chapter 1. And Christ in us enables us to actually live a life that brings honor and glory to the Lord, a life of obedience, a life that allows us to say, yes, Lord, I will, by the power of your spirit residing inside of me. You will change me, Lord, from the inside out, because I do not have the power to keep the commitments that I want to keep. The things that I long to do, I cannot do in and of my own strength. And Exodus 32 serves as a reminder of the weakness of human flesh. It tells us in verse 1 that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now that first line is the people come to Aaron, who obviously had been designated as the high priest of the nation, was a spokesperson for Moses, a man that they would recognize as a leader alongside of Moses. They go to this very public figure and they say to him, one of the most depressing lines in all of the Bible, they say, make us gods who shall go before us. Now in requesting for Moses to make them gods, some suggest that the people of Israel actually weren't asking for gods to replace Yahweh. And there is some evidence of that later on in this chapter because they will actually still sacrifice and hold a feast unto the Lord, but perhaps what they were requesting was some kind of visible, tangible object that in their minds would either represent the Lord or stand in addition to the Lord. But still, and obviously that speaks to the reality of often wanting something that we can see, so much easier to follow someone or something that we can see, but the Lord has called us to walk by faith and not by sight. We're not to see the God 
that we serve and follow. And they couldn't see the Lord, but they could see the works and effects of the Lord. God had repeatedly manifested his power and his compassion and his ability, but amongst the people of Israel, these things were soon forgotten. Notice as well that Moses, not just God, but Moses is forgotten as well. They say, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He'd only been gone for 40 days and 40 nights, but that was long enough for them to come to the conclusion that he was gone. It was far too long for them. And just in a short period of time, the people of Israel lose heart, their zeal fades, and they begin to turn from the Lord. So Aaron, verse 2, said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Now the right answer would have been that Aaron would plead with the people of Israel and encourage them and correct them and offer them the perspective that they sorely needed at this moment in time. When a brother or sister is discouraged and is thinking of cashing in on their faith, thinking of walking away from the Lord, it is imperative that God's people, especially God's leaders, would speak to them and encourage them and exhort them in their faith. But instead, Aaron buckled and he said, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters and bring them to me. Probably the rings of gold that had been acquired from the Egyptians on that day of the Exodus. So all the people, verse 3, took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, obviously, this was a violation of the second commandment that God had given to the people of Israel not to make graven images or idols for themselves. And so, but still, here's Aaron fashioning this golden calf for the people of Israel. And some people have debated as far as to what this golden calf represents. Was it the Egyptian bull god Apis or some other thing? Did it symbolize fertility or sexual strength? We don't really know for sure, but what we can see here is that Aaron allowed pressure from the people to dictate his actions, number one, and his theology, number two. I find that this is often the case with those who started out well in the body of Christ, maybe whole denominations or individual churches or individual believers who started off believing the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. They believe that Christ is the only way to salvation. They believe that the blood of Jesus is necessary for atonement. They believe in the fallenness and the sinfulness, the depravity of Mankind. They believe in an eternity with God and an eternity without God. They believe in God's just and righteous punishment of the wicked. But as time goes on, they begin to bend and flex their views. 
to where eventually what you have is a watered-down version of the original. And often this is caused by pressure from the culture or from within even the body of Christ. Pressure which causes leaders to change their actions and eventually their theology. Here you have Aaron saying things like, these are your gods, O Israel. Trying to say, hey, listen, here's this golden calf, but don't forget your original God as well, Yahweh. These are your gods here, O Israel. But that pressure, unfortunately, caused Aaron to let go of his integrity and his stand for truth and to buckle and do things that he probably never dreamed that he would do. Proverbs 1 verse 7 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is where it's at. A person that respects the Lord, reveres the Lord, and cares not of the perspective of man. The fear of man, however, Proverbs 29 verse 25, lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. In verse 5, perhaps in an attempt to salvage the situation, it says that when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And so trying to still hold fast a little bit to the Lord, but it's too late. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so here they have immorality accompanying idolatry. And of course, when you read Romans chapter 1, you understand that these things often come together. You have burnt offerings and peace offerings, but you also have eating and drinking and rising up to play, which is an allusion to immorality. And so you have this idolatry combined with their immorality. In Romans 1, of course, the idolatry of the world and worshiping the creature rather than the creator is actually motivated by an immorality, wanting to do sexually whatever they wanted to do and breaking the bonds of marriage restraints, even breaking the bonds of gender restraints. Mankind, in wanting to break those bonds, you have often false worship that will accompany immorality. And the people of God here, the people of Israel, exemplify that. And the Lord said to Moses in the middle of all of this, verse 7, Go down for your people, notice God speaking to Moses, says these are your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. And so in one sense, it appears that God is beginning to disown 
the people of Israel. He appears in one sense ready to eliminate this nation and to fulfill the promises that had previously been given to them through the line of Moses. But as the text moves on, it appears that this is actually a great test of this man, Moses. It says in verse 11 that Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember, verse 13, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever." And the Lord, upon hearing this from Moses, relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I want you to notice a few things here in the interaction between God and Moses at this crucial point in Israel's history. First of all, Moses took the position of a mediator before the nation. He implored the Lord his God and began to pray for the people of Israel, began to intercede for them. And this would not be the first time or the last time, especially, that Moses would intercede for the nation of Israel. This would be a regular occurrence throughout the entire Pentateuch. And in that, what you have here is a picture of the position that Moses occupied in the nation. And of course, it encourages those of us who are in any form of leadership inside of the body of Christ to pray for those whom God has entrusted into our care. But there's a bigger picture that I think the Lord wants us to see. Here is Moses, who is a figurehead for the law, interceding federally for the entire nation of Israel. Of course, Moses came with the law, but Jesus Christ came, as John tells us in John chapter 1, with grace and truth. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets and to take the new position as our head. And just as Moses stood in the gap between the people of Israel and God himself, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and God the Son, stands in the gap for God's people, interceding for us. Far better intercession than Moses or any leader could ever offer. Jesus intercedes for us. And of course, what he pleads is something wonderful. He pleads his own blood over us. Says, Father, accept these people as your beloved children. Make them co-heirs with me. Just as you see me, see them. The righteousness you see in me, impute to their account. Wonderful intercession that we receive from our great leader, our great head. But in this prayer from Moses, notice how he prays. First of all, God had said, Moses, these are your people. 
But Moses in verse 11 says, No, Lord, they are your people whom you have brought out. They belong to you, Lord. I've had nothing to do with this. I've just been a player in this grand display that you've been performing in front of all of the nations. So, Lord, please, they're your people. You've brought them out. You get the credit. But notice his motivation in praying this way. He says, verse 12, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, God brought them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? In this prayer, what Moses is saying is, God, I am intensely concerned for your honor, for your glory, for your reputation amongst the nations. The best way for us to pray is to pray for the glory, the honor, the reputation of the Lord to run wild and have good success in this world. I think we sometimes overlook this even in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, sometimes we say that the first prayer that Jesus told us to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But before that, Jesus said, no, you pray, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I think that's prayer request number one. Hallowed be your name. We want your name, Father, to be glorified. We want people to see you for who you really are. So whatever you need to do through our lives and through the trials and difficulties that might confront us, we want whatever occurs in our lives to bring you glory. That's our main concern, our main request. And it was definitely the chief thing that Moses was concerned with. He did not want the Egyptians to look down upon the God of Israel and see him as a brutal tyrant. In verse 13, however, he pleads not just the glory and the reputation of God, but he pleads the promises and the nature of God when he says, Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants. You made these promises to these men, and you have been fulfilling these promises to their descendants. Lord, please keep these promises. He's pleading the promises and the nature of God as a promise keeper. And it's wonderful to plead the nature, the character, the heart of God. He is a good God. He's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. And to plead these attributes of God's nature in prayer are an excellent way to cry out to the Lord. Notice that Moses did not plead the innocence and the goodness of the people. And that wasn't a part of his prayer. He goes before the Lord. He says, Lord, no argument here. These people are lawbreakers, but I'm going to plead with you based on your glory and your nature to relent from this, to forgive them, and to still work with these people. And the Lord, of course, in verse 14, relented from the disaster. Moses' way of describing what God had done. And this is encouraging because it suggests that although God is sovereign, he is not inflexible. He responds to individuals' needs and attitudes and actions. And so he doesn't take that undesirable course of action. He relents. 
Then Moses, verse 15, turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So Moses comes down the mountain, and he's got the Ten Commandments in his hands. I like that God wrote the commandments on the front and on the back. Did you see that there in verse 15? Kind of indicating there's no room for any additions. You know, God filled up all of the space, and any subtraction would be glaringly obvious. Now, when Joshua heard, verse 17, the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Now, Joshua was a little further down the mountain, and when he rejoins with Moses now after these 40 days, he says, Moses, I've heard something. It's the noise of war in the camp. He didn't know, however, what Moses knew. And Moses said, verse 18, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. There's a celebration. Moses understood what was going on at the base of the mountain. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf of the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now, this is, of course, quite impressive from this singular man, Moses, over a couple of million people. And the first thing that he does is his anger, of course, burns hot and he throws the tablets out of his hands and broke them. Of course, this was symbolic in so many ways of the broken law. They had broken the commandments of God and Moses throws these tablets on the ground indicating that they were law breakers. But notice what he does with their idol. Number one, he burns it with fire. This speaks of judgment. That fire judged that idol. He then grinds it to powder, speaking of a powerlessness in that false god. He takes it and scatters it on the water, indicating that it is worthless. It's gold, but he scatters it. It is now worthless. And he makes the people of Israel drink it. He's saying, listen, you are going to suffer the consequences of this. It might hurt for you to drink this, but you're going to consume it. It's going to come out of your body as refuse, and you're going to see how God views this false god. He sees it as dung that comes from your body. And so a strong thing that Moses is doing here in dealing completely with this sin, he's driving it far from them. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Their leader now had to give an account. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. They gave it to me and I threw it into the fire. And listen to this. Aaron said, and out came this calf. Now, this is, of course, one of those beautiful 
partial truths. Did he throw the gold into the fire? Well, yes. Did a golden calf come out of the fire? Absolutely. But it came out of the fire because Aaron and his graven tool fashioned it. He was bold-faced lying to Moses and blaming the people. That original sin in which Adam and Eve blamed others, the man blaming the woman, the woman blaming the serpent, that blame shifting is a part of our nature. And I tell you what, it speaks to the work of the Holy Spirit's consecration in an individual believer's life when they cease shifting the blame and start receiving the blame. And just saying, yeah, that's who I am. That's what I've done. Lord, by your grace and mercy, change me, transform me, turn me into something new. Now, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, that's a description of their idolatry and their immorality, to the derision of their enemies, this had occurred. Then Moses, verse 26, stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, verse 27, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. In that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son, and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. This is a horrible moment in Israel's history. 3,000 people died. These sons of Levi, they had consecrated themselves. They said, yeah, we didn't want to worship this false god. We are on the Lord's side. And it appears that what's happening is that they go out and find 3,000 who were persistently unrepentant of their sin. This is the section of Israel that had broken loose to the derision of their enemies. And they put the sword on their side and they go out and remedy this situation, cutting off the sin from amongst them. Had they been allowed to live, they would have caused greater damage than had they been killed and been judged. And of course, this sword is... Similar to the word of God itself. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The word of God living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. The word of God is a, in one sense, judge over us. And they pull out their swords and they judge their fellow brothers who were persistent in unrepentant sin. The next day, verse 30, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. Again, here's Moses interceding for the people. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, verse 32, if you will forgive their sin, but if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people 
to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. A couple of things here quickly. Number one, Moses realized that the nation as a whole shared the guilt. And so he entreats the Lord for the atonement of their sin. Secondly, his prayer was so intense that he said, Lord, blot me out of your book if you are unable to clear them of this iniquity. Now, some think that Moses was referring to the book of life. We see it again in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. But it's very possible that they had taken a census of the people and that that book of God's people, Moses is saying, hey, listen, God, blot me out as well. I want to go down with them if that's what you are doing. And so maybe a premature death is what Moses is saying. Just take my life, Lord, so to speak. But a wonderful heart that Moses had in praying this way. It's a heart that Paul had as well in Romans chapter 9 when he said, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, speaking of the people of Israel. Notice also that God rejected Moses' offer and said, no, I'm going to judge those who committed the crime. And the Lord sent a plague in verse 35, which caused many people to die in addition to the 3,000 that the Levites had already killed. Do not be deceived, Galatians 6 verse 7 says. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also Read. And so God, definitely merciful here, but also just. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.